When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Except last week. Yeah. <laughs> I was there for part of it. <laughs> part of it, yeah. Anything new? Meh. Okay. I got to see Mark Knopfler. Yeah. How was that? Um, it was amazing. If you have a chance to see him in concert, go see him. I actually think he was at the Greek Theater last night here. Oh, okay. So when this episode drops, tomorrow, I'm putting tomorrow in quotation marks, will be my 40th birthday. Oh, happy so, birthday, LD. Yay. So we're Send gonna, batteries. Send batteries. <laughs> we go through a lot of batteries in our recorder. There are so, I, I got, <laughs> okay, so before we use like the crappy fries batteries, and I saw in like CVS or something like this special pack of batteries it's it's not in like the open pack it's dark packaging and with like fancy lettering it was only like seven bucks but it's fancy like, lettering what? yeah oh yeah it's like the gray poupon of de- of batteries yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna start rolling my window down and go pardon me do you have any duracell batteries <laughs> double a them rayovac ones have been doing well for us yeah the rayovac ones did really well yeah uh, the ones that are in here now are Duracell. So we're not sponsored by battery companies. <laughs> we, we just should be. really care about how long our batteries last. Yes, because <laughs> it tends to screw up our recordings when they die. Yep, and we have to start over, and that does not make us happy at y- all. Yeah, we did. Uh, Which speaking of, how many bars do we have on this sucker? All four, baby. Woohoo! You missed where I actually talked about Live Aid, which is where we left off because Live Aid is the greatest 20 minutes in rock history. And so that's. So you talked about it for like two hours? Two hours and four minutes. Um, (laughs) It. It was a lot to talk about. We actually covered, I think, 11 years of Freddie's life. So it, it was a lot to talk about. And I still haven't gotten a cease and desist letter about taking the actual Live Aid performance off of our podcast. So oh you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, y'all, if you actually listen through our like plugs for our social media and stuff, you get to hear a song at the end. Yeah. And in this case, the entire his entire Live Aid performance, apparently. Yeah, it was, uh, I believe it was an hour and 40 minutes of episode and then the last 20 minutes were Live Aid. <laughs> so 
It was a two-hour episode, so I'm glad that our short set is now at eight pages. Yowza. <laughs> All right, so we start in 1985. So we have six years. Hey, I was, I was a year old then. I was six. So July 13th, 1985 would be a day that went down in history as the Live Aid concert took the world by storm in London's vast Wembley Stadium, which is where Queen performed, and from Philadelphia in the U.S., Queen were just one of a multitude of bands who performed a short 20-minute set and the world was watching, and Queen was unanimously voted by press and public alike as the band that stole the show. That event was a turning point for Queen. They had decided to take some time to themselves and take a break from each other, but that day brought them together with renewed vigor and enthusiasm. One Vision was the first release to come from the new inspiration. So I'll talk about this more in our next episode, but people get this idea that Freddie was the only one that had a solo career and that simply isn't true. Mr. Bad Guy is the only studio album from Freddie released in 1985 during that period in which Queen were on hiatus from recording and it contained 11 songs all written by him. Mercury drew on disco and dance influences for the album. This was in contrast to Queen's typically rock-oriented work. The album took nearly two years to record as Mercury had to gather enough material while committing to the band activities. Initially, the album was supposed to feature duets with Mercury and Michael Jackson. I'll have more on that next episode. They recorded There Must Be More to Life Than This, but Mercury dropped out of any further collaborations after feeling uncomfortable with working with Jackson's pet llama in the studio. Llama, llama. That's your contribution. <laughs> I mean, what do you say to that? I, I'm just trying to imagine, first of all, that Michael Jackson had a pet llama. Of course he had a pet llama. Why wouldn't he have a well, pet llama? Well, this was not something I was previously aware of. <laughs> and two, the idea of a llama in the recording studio. How do you get a llama to the recording studio? A trailer. I know, but I guess. you have to figure that out before. I really wish that I had lived to see Michael Jackson riding a llama to the studio. Can you ride a did llama? He, I was going to say, did he ride it? I don't think he, he did. did he just bring it? Yeah, I think he just brought it. Whole new level of emotional support animal, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ask Michael Jackson, he said that he was actually upset by Mercury's drug use. And so I so, guess. So, you know, they each compromises. <laughs> so recording was actually very taxing on Mercury and he took part in everything from performing the tracks to sound engineering to obtaining his desired effect, which it seems like a, a lot of times that was kind of the norm for him. But he took on a lot more than he was used to because he wouldn't have to do like the actual sound engineering part of it. So Mercury used synthesizers and orchestration in track development, adding it to the diversity in each piece. The album was originally planned to be called Made in Heaven, but Mercury changed his mind weeks before the album was going to go to press. And if you know anything about the Queen discography, they actually did release a CD called Made in Heaven after Freddie died. So the, the title didn't go to waste. Well, that's good. Yeah. The lead single, I Was Born to Love You which, by the way, is one of my alarms Okay. Uh, to wake up to because it starts off with like this almost, it sort of sounds like a flash of lightning or thunder, but made of metal. It's very odd. It's like, and that'll wake you up. Ooh. Yeah. It's pretty, but it, 
It debuted at number 50 on April 14th, 1985, peaking at number 11. And on the 5th of May, oh, P- oh, so it peaked at number 11 on the 5th of May, 1985. It also reached number four in South Africa and number 20 on the 1st of June in Australia. Made in Heaven peaked at number 57 on the UK singles charts in 1985 and charted for four weeks. Living on My Own charted 50 in the UK, while the fourth and final single, Love Me Like There's No Tomorrow, debuted and peaked at number 76 on the UK charts on the 24th of November, 1985. And for Freddie's birthday this year, they re-released the song, Love Me Like There's No Tomorrow, and it's an animated video. And I was watching it in Patrick's office at work. Uh-oh. And I'm wearing mascara. <laughs> and my mascara went from my eyeballs to my chin. <laughs> Whoops. And Shauna, Shauna, one of my coworkers, walked in, and I'm just openly weeping with the earbuds in my ear so she can't actually hear what I'm listening to. And she's like, oh, God, what's happening? And I'm like, it's Freddie's birthday. And you can't. So I emailed her the link because obviously I'm not making sense at this point. And about three minutes later, she's doing the exact same thing. So it's a beautiful music video. It's all animated. And I don't want to give it away too much, but it almost seems a little bit like they took Freddie's story of a relationship and animated it. And it's gut-wrenching. But it didn't do really well on the charts. But But I would hope that they would, you know, relate it to Mm. the song. Yeah. They you do. know, like, it's kind of the point of a music radio. Disappointing sales of his solo work could have had something to do with Freddie's malaise. His single Maiden Heaven had flopped in the UK in early 1985 and only reached number 57. And Living on My Own barely did any better, peaking at number 50. So I'm just going to wrap this up. In 1985, David Clark actually came to Freddie to ask him to do a new song for a London musical called Time. And Roger and John took some of their own time apart from the band to do solo projects. But given the success of Live Aid, it was obvious to everybody that Queen were better as a unit than solo performers. In September of 1985, all four members got together with producer Mac. They went back to Munich and were ready to record, accompanied by a documentary crew, The Wiz, capturing them drinking vodka constantly, chain-smoking incessantly, What they produced in that was a song called One Vision. And that was actually the first single that they had ever released that was only under the name Queen. Huh? Well, before this, each individual person was getting credit for each song. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they got together, they were like, we're just going to, we're going to get together. We're going to, everyone is going to share Share the credit. Share the credit. So it's not going to be John. It's not going to be Brian. It's not going to be Freddie. It's not going to be Roger. It's going to be Queen. One Vision was released as a single in November of 1985, and the song hit top 10 in the UK, peaking at number 7, although it would only make 61 in the US, where the band was still unpopular and unfashionable. How? <laughs> I don't... No clue. I don't understand. There's also an element of backlash in the UK towards One Vision with some selections of the British press, seeing the record as an example of the band blatantly cashing in on their success at Live Aid a few months earlier. And if you hear One Vision, I could see how you would think that because it is like this, let's get together, let's work together, it's going to be great, the world's going to be amazing, we love you, that kind of thing. Super cheese. Oh, those songs. Yeah, it's super cheesy. 
it's the we are the world kind of thing. So, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Freddie went to the world famous Abbey Road studio in London where he recorded the concept album, a version of In My Defense, a power ballad written by David Clark for his musical. Freddie also found time in November to do a stint on the catwalk accompanied by actress Jane Seymour dressed in an Elizabeth and David Emmanuel wedding gown across the stage at the Royal Albert Hall in aid of Fashion Week. Whew. He shuttled between London and Munich with his partner Jim Hutton, who was flying out to Germany to be with him every other weekend. But Jim thought that their time in Munich would be relaxing, and he was actually really disappointed because he had found that Freddie had thrown himself into the next Queen project, and he was alone more often than not left to his own devices. And this is a quote from Jim. In the studio, Freddie had a one-track mind. Work, work, and more work. He recalls, I'm watching him through the glass, but he would rarely glance my way because he was so totally absorbed in his work. He chain-smoked, or rather chain-lit, <laughs> silk cuts, and to boost his energy, he would slug down Russian vodka. And there was a, they actually gave me the brand of vodka. Couldn't tell you what it was because it was in, like, Russian. <laughs> well, Yeah. So it had like onks and umlauts and all different. Was it Kharkov? <laughs> it might have been. That was the brand my grandpa, my great grandpa used to drink. <laughs> Man, I don't think I've ever actually had a good kind of Russian vodka. I don't know. I don't even know if it was Russian vodka. I just know that that was the brand you used to drink and it, I've had it and it is not good. Fair. <laughs> evenings two were spent in the recording studio after which the whole group would go to the restaurant together and then Freddie and Jim would slip away to one of its nightclubs in the Bermuda Triangle and I guess that was like an area of clubs because I don't think it, I don't think they meant it you don't way. think they actually went to the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> but either Munich's appeal was seemingly beginning to fade for Freddie or the the risk that was offered in the city starting to frighten him so basically either his love for the city had changed or he was beginning to fear what the streets had for him. And by that, I mean, at the point that we're at right now, we're very much in the heat of the, the HIV pandemic that's happening. Right. He began to spend more time in London living in his newly renovated luxury mansion, Garden Lodge. Going out to nightclubs seemed to have less appeal for Freddie whenever he was in the city. And the gay scene had become increasingly too distant for him. Though his two previous releases had performed badly, Love Me Like There's No Tomorrow was pretty much the bottom of the barrel. Something had happened to make him change his ways, but nobody could put their finger on it. So he was he was in a relationship with Barbara Valentina in Munich. And that's one thing that we'll talk about next episode in the section of people that were just left completely out of Bohemian Rhapsody. But Freddie's sexuality was kind of fluid. He was bisexual. And he was seeing both Jim Hutton and Barbara at the same time, along with another guy, David Menz. And so these guys kind of folded all into each other. And people were starting to notice a change in Freddie, but no one could figure out what it was. And I'm just speculating here, but I feel like maybe he was, he was always shy. But I feel like at this point, he's starting to close in on himself and kind of turn away from that lifestyle that he had been living. And it couldn't have helped his ego that his solo project out did so poorly. Even though I do love, I love, love me like there's no tomorrow. 
I love I Was Born to Love You. I love One Vision. I think it's all brilliant, but this is all in hindsight. So, But he was with Barbara one night, and this actually comes from author Leslie Jones's biography called Mercury, that he had cut himself, and she was trying to help him, and he had blood all over his hands, and he just started screaming at her, don't touch me, don't touch me. Valentina continued to tell Jones, it was then that I realized. He never actually told me about that, but I knew after that. But honestly, it's pure speculation and hearsay because no one can exactly nail down when he discovered that he was HIV positive. Like no one knows exactly when. Most likely it was because he knew in all probability that he was HIV positive. Again, speculative. Yeah. Well, I can't remember if I keep it in my notes. So if I do, I'll just cut this part. But if not, maybe... Doctors are different in other countries, but I believe that the doctor that he took the test with just came out and said, oh, yeah, he took an HIV test. Oh. Returning to London in the sanctuary of the Garden Lodge with Jim, who had now moved in, Freddie not only cut off his friends in Munich, many whom would die of AIDS-related illnesses in the coming months and years, but he also cut out the one-night stands, the cocaine use, and the nightclubbing. I used to live for sex, but now I've changed. I've stopped going out. I'm almost become a nun. It's amazing. I thought that sex was a very important thing to me, but now I've completely gone the other way. Once I was extremely promiscuous. It was excess in every direction, but now I'm totally different. I've stopped all that, and I don't miss that kind of life. Everything was fine. (sighs) Remember how you felt with Janice? Yeah. Yeah. Christmas of 1985, Freddie was at his garden lodge with Jim Hutton, who had moved in with the singer in November of 1985. As part of the deal, Jim would contribute to the household keeping budget, despite the fact that he was only earning 100 pounds a week at the Savoy and Freddie was a multimillionaire. It hardly seemed like a fair arrangement, but between them, Freddie and Jim agreed that Jim should pay 50 pounds a week in contributions to the household and Freddie would take care of the rest. It represented over half my weekly wage and he would never actually tell Freddie what he was making, but Freddie would would take care of the rest and Jim kind of was happy to pay. So, well, that works. Yeah, I paid willingly. It somehow kept our relationship on fair footing, but Freddie actually dropped the idea later. Like he later on was like, don't worry about it. I think so. But I mean, I think that's that's actually kind of cool on both parts. Like, like Freddie wanted him to contribute to the household and the relationship and Jim wanted to contribute to the household and the relationship. And I think that was like, that was a beautiful, sweet pairing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the New Year's started off with Queen and Freddie working on a new movie project directed by Russell, oh geez, Mulcahy. Highlander was a big-budget adventure starring Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery. The band were invited to view a 20-minute rough cut of the film to decide whether it was something that might appeal to them, and they watched it, and they were actually instantly hooked. We weren't creating a complete soundtrack because that that part of the, the actual composition would be created in America by composer Michael Kamen, but they would contribute nine songs. Queen's next album, A Kind of Magic, became the unofficial soundtrack released to Highlander. Because if you go and check out their, their discography, they don't actually mention the Highlander soundtrack, but A Kind of Magic has the songs from the Highlander soundtrack. So they kind of folded it over. So that's that's the hitch in the discography. So if you're wondering, that's why. And comprised five of the songs used within the movie and the other four songs specifically written for the album 
including Pain is So Close to Pleasure and Friends Will Be Friends, both songs co-written by Mercury and Deacon, as well as the band's previous single release, One Vision. At the time of the release, A Kind of Magic Queen had been together for 15 years and questions have been asked about how much more they had to give. So, (sighs) popping back into a 1985 interview that John Deacon had given, he indicated that the band was kind of desperate for inspiration and they had kind of worn each other down. We're not so much of a group anymore. We're four individuals that work together as queen, but we're not working together as queen. And it's now taking up less and less of our time. So you could see why that would cause some rumors of them breaking up. There have always been rumors about Queen breaking up, but now those rumors seem to have some substance to them. A meeting, some would say a crisis meeting, was held in Switzerland where the four band members would say that they wanted to give it one more try. The result was a kind of magic, the songs for Highlander, and the spectacular tour that would follow. Yeah, kind of magic was crucial for Queen and keeping the group unified, but a familiar villain snuck back in. Dun-dun-dun. That's the time for it. Dun-dun-dun. See, it works so better. It's like it works better when you actually say villain. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Paul Printer, <laughs> if you remember him, remained a negative influence. Who dat? Oh, Paul. Just Paul. In, just in case anybody out there maybe is behind. You know. <laughs> like you. Paul came on because he had known John Reed back in Belfast. And a lot of bad things yeah, were happening. I remember in, him. So you remember him? Yes. I don't remember if you were here because we split it up, so I can't remember I what I part was I, what. I think I was here for that. Yeah. But just remind everybody else. Okay. <laughs> what kind of naughty he was. Uh, he hasn't been super naughty yet, but he was kind of a negative influence on Mercury in the past. Like, he wouldn't pick up the phone for certain callers. He wouldn't tell Freddie about certain events and things like that. So it... it He's just got Freddie's ear enough to be a bad influence on him, but he hasn't been a big baddie yet. And apparently, I don't know if I left it in my notes, but Brian May actually said, well, he wasn't that bad, but everybody kind of went, you know, Paul. Yeah, but he was, yeah, but he was that guy. He was like the one trying to ride the coattails and reap the rewards, but also encourage some not so pleasant behavior. Yeah. Yeah. He was actually constantly telling Freddie that he was bigger than the rest of the band and he'd be better off on his own. And he became a nightmare because he became divisive between Freddie and the band, recalled John Reed. So he, he became a nightmare. And, and people would actually just kind of put up with Paul because Freddie, I think at some point Freddie did genuinely care about him. I used to be wary of him and that's the best thing I can say about Paul. And I think that's uh, Peter Stryker. His influence wasn't just on Mercury's career. They were also lovers. If you look at a lot of the Queen fan forums, you can find hatred aimed right at Printer. He's tarred with terms such as Judas and Devil Spawn. And that is not me saying that, so please don't write me hate mail. (laughs) Uh, Most of the hatred stems from Printer selling his story to a national newspaper after they broke up. Their relationship appeared to have broken down after Mercury ditched the scene, turning away from drugs and drinking, and then parting ways. Paul held nothing back in sharing the details about Mercury's personal life, his lovers, and vices. He claimed Freddie had slept with hundreds of men and that two of his former lovers 
had died of AIDS. Freddie was so scared that he would catch it. It was more likely that I would see him walk on water than go with a woman, Paul once said. Once his friends started dying, Freddie knew that his wildlife had to stop. Printer also spoke about Mercury's early life seeming to break his confidence. Freddie first told me about his homosexual relationships that were happening when he was in boarding school in India when he was 14. He said, while they were touring, there would be a different man every night. He would probably go to bed by 6, 7 a.m., but rarely alone. He has fears of sleeping alone or, or even being alone for long stretches. Mercury acted swiftly and fired Paul as his manager. Mercury's lover, Jim Hutton, said the singer felt that it was the ultimate betrayal. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah? I mean, okay, and this is the days before, like, social media and fake news and all that stuff. But to go to the news... And to lay everything out like that, because he hasn't announced that he's got HIV. He doesn't, he, he hasn't publicly spoken about being gay. And all of a sudden there's this guy who's like, yeah, I was his lover. He started having homosexual relationships when he was 14 in boarding school and blah, blah, blah. And he has photos and stories and he's laying everything out. And please, please remember the background of his family. Right. Yeah, I'd feel betrayal. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, it's just wrong to out anybody anyways, but more so, no, I can't even say more so. It's just wrong to out someone, period. But this is like a huge betrayal, especially by somebody that you trust and that you have bedded yourself, you know, like, it's just, Well, I mean, also, this is still the 80s. We have almost 40 years on this story. Yeah. And the most recent celebrity I remember being confirmed with AIDS is Charlie Sheen. Oh, yeah. And he just came out and he he said it. And we hear all the time about this person being gay. Zachary Quinto is homosexual. And we don't, I don't think we care anymore. Yeah, but it's been, I mean, there's still the people that do and that, are just not okay with it, that are very vocal and gross. But Westboro Baptist Church, I'm looking at you. Yeah. Um, but as a larger society and group, it's much more accepted now. And, you know, you can live your truth. You can yeah. be who you are. In his book, Mercury and Me, he said, on May 4th, Freddie was devastated by another story about him in the sun. And that's one of the British newspapers and so was i his old friend paul printer had stitched him up aids kills freddie's two lovers it declared and the story was run across three pages tony baston from brighton and john murphy an airline steward had died from the disease in 1986 and printer claimed that freddie had called him late one night and poured out his fears about aids that same article actually mentioned jim hutton and the pair found out later that Printer had been paid for his story. Hutton added that Paul had tried to get in touch with Mercury to explain calling Garden Lodge, but Freddie wouldn't speak to him. I wouldn't either. Uh, no. You don't get to come back from something like that. You tell the world that... That not only are you gay, <sighs> but you may have AIDS. Two of your lovers two have of died. Two of your lovers have died. And, and oh, then- by the way, this other closeted guy is also one of your lovers. Oh... But sure, let's have a talk. Yeah, let's chat. No. No, you don't get to come back from that. You you, you walk away. Go F yourself. Go love yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs>
keep in mind that this was the 80s when AIDS was actually at its worst. Not only was it a death sentence, but the hysteria and stigma of the autoimmune disease would have ruined Mercury's reputation for years to come. All of this, as Hutton mentioned, so Printer could get paid. He did this for money. Yeah, which is gross. You're disgusting. Sorry, I, I don't know him. I never will. That story's coming up, but I find that despicable. I don't usually editorialize a lot on this show, but that's that's disgusting. We're allowed to our opinions. Yep. If you don't like it, you can skip about five seconds and I'm going to move to something else. Yeah. <laughs> Freddie, Freddie never spoke to him again. For the next few days, there was more in the sun. And at each episode of Pritchard's Story, Freddie became angrier and angrier. He sold the paper several photographs with Freddie and various lovers. And these were thrown over the two pages under the heading, All the Queen's Men. What I found out was that he was never more than arm's length away from Freddie. And he was always whispering in his ear on his shoulder. That was very telling, Leach told the Metro when speaking about his research on how to portray Paul in the role in Bohemian Rhapsody. I think his name is Alan Leach. Once I saw how he talked and how he acted and how much control he tried to have over Freddie, even in the party or the clubbing situation, that was very telling for me. And so, yeah, like when you watch the film, you'll see like he's kind of a devil on the shoulder. Just right. enough. Just nudging. Yeah. And he's I could I, the best word I could say for it is looming. He looms. And he's always in the frame. He's always there. (sighs) And as far as we know, the two never reconciled. And that's completely understandable for Freddie, who felt completely betrayed by someone he had considered a confidant and family. But in August 1991, four years after selling his story to the British tabloids, Paul died from AIDS-related complications. Huh. And he died before Freddie did. Yeah. So moving on from Paul, in March 1986, John formed a new band called The Immortals to write and record some of the music for the forthcoming film called Biggles. But I (laughs) I don't know what Biggles is. Biggles? Biggles. All right. They recorded just one track, No Turning Back, and the band folded. On June 2nd, Queen released their 14th album, the soundtrack of Highlander, entitled Kind of Magic, which we talked about. On June 7th, Queen Machine was back in action again when they embarked on their magic tour of Europe. The first UK gig was at Newcastle's St. James Park Football Stadium. And uh, for our American listeners, that's soccer. Yeah. (laughs) The band and their promoter, Harvey Goldsmith, donated all the proceeds from that concert to the International Save the Children's Fund. That's awesome. On June 11th, the Queen Tornado, as Freddie dubbed it, hit London and two sold-out shows at the vast Wembley Stadium. I have that concert on DVD. Uh, it's awesome. Okay, then. <laughs> Sorry. I got real. And my favorite photo of Freddie was taken at that concert, which it's almost like the Bohemian Rhapsody cover, but not quite. But it's him. And my, my favorite version of it is a black and white version of the picture. But it's him alone on stage in front of this massive crowd. And he's up on his toes, but he's bent all the way back. So it's like, right. And it's so cool. I'll show you the picture later. I think I've seen it. You probably have. During that, like I was saying, I have the DVD, but during that set at Wembley Stadium over those two nights, they actually recorded it for release on TV at a later date. And when that concert finally came to TV, it was the first one to ever be ever be simulcast between Channel 4 and the independent radio network in Britain. 
This feat has never been since repeated, possibly because in order to achieve this, a satellite dish had to be delivered to every single independent radio station in the UK so they could receive the sound by satellite whilst receiving the picture by normal landlines. What? That's why it's important. On June 27th of that year, Queen made history again when they played the beautiful Nibstaniona in Budapest, Hungary. It was the first time a major rock band had played a stadium date in the Eastern Bloc, and it was completely sold out well in advance. In Budapest. Which I understand is a beautiful country. I'm sure it is. I wouldn't. I don't know. I've never been there. Neither have I. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> the concert <laughs> was filmed by the Hungarian state film agency Mafilm in connection with Queen Films, and they had to commandeer every 35-millimeter camera in Hungary to film it. On August 9th, the man flew into Kemenworth Park in Hedfordshire in a specially repainted helicopter featuring the characters from a Kind of Magic album cover. It was the final date on the Magic Tour, and it was the biggest audience so far. Estimated at well over 120,000 people, it caused one of the biggest traffic jams in history as everyone tried to arrive with plenty of time. Over one million people saw Queen on that European Magic Tour in excess of 400,000 in the UK alone. In November 1986, EMI Records released the entire Queen catalog of albums on the compact disc format, the first time any band's complete collection had been made available simultaneously. In December, Queen's 15th album and their second, their 15th album and their second live album was entitled Live Magic, and it entered the British charts at number three. On the 13th of December, the band's film Live in Budapest, which I have on DVD. <laughs> I'm pretty much just going to assume if it exists, you own it. Probably. <laughs> opened in Budapest at 9 a.m. and then proceeded to play to nine sold-out houses in one day. Seven completely full screenings were shown each day for a week. During 1986, in the U.K. alone, Queen stole a staggering 1,774,991 albums. I'm so proud that I got to say that. <laughs> Good job. I said it right. <laughs> On February 3rd, Freddie released a cover version of the great old platter song, The Great Pretender. And in the video to accompany the song, Freddie recreated many scenes from his own and Queen's videos. And actor Peter Stryker, Roger Taylor, and Freddie all don wigs, made up their faces, and became female backing singers. It was an expensive video. Oh, I saw video. the video for this. Yeah. It was expensive, apparently. Or I saw a video of them behind the scenes getting ready yeah. Like dressing in all the women's wear? Yeah. And, yeah. and well, it, there's two of those. Oh, okay. Uh, one is I Want to Break Free, which uh, I know you weren't here for because Will loves that song. And we actually uh, talked about when we went to go see My Favorite Murders podcast live. There were like six different people dressed up like Freddie Mercury. And one of them was from the I Want to Break Free video. But it was a woman dressed as Freddie, dressed as a woman. Nice. <laughs> So yeah, he he, you know they were able to lampoon themselves like that. So right, while on the magic tour, a Spanish reporter asked Freddie Mercury who his favorite singer was, and Mercury responded that it was Montserrat Caballer, 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 yeah. a, a native of Spain. Just use her pronunciation. Montserrat Caballer, Caballer, Caballer. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a native of Spain. NPR reports that she loved singing from a young age and began to perform 
with the Basel Opera in 1956. Cabaret found out about Mercury's comments, and her brother-slash-manager reached out to the singer a few days later. During that time, Freddie actually got to record with her. His health was visibly declining, but by some accounts, Mercury took an HIV test in 1985, but according to the book Somebody to Love, which that was one of my main sources for this podcast. Right. It is so thick. It is a heavy book. It is dense. It has got a lot of words and it goes on many tangents. It's a great book if you want to sit down and read, but it's dual storytelling. It's the story of Freddie and it's also the story of HIV and events that are around Queen and it's dense. So if you want to sit down and read a heavy book about Queen, that's the one to pick up. And that's the one that we used. He stated that it came back negative. And during his time with Caballier, however, he began to see Caposi's sarcoma appearing on his body. I think that's like open wounds. Ew. Well, it's what happens with... Yeah. It's, it's legions. Uh, while performing in Ibiza, for example, he had his team covering up lesions on his cheeks with significant amounts of makeup. Caballé told Spanish news agency El País, Mercury told me about his illnesses. When we had the opportunity to create songs that all have meanings, I was moved because we were creating something very special. It's not often. It's good fortune to sing with someone who is leaving, who knows it, and to be singing with him and his final goodbye. According to The Guardian, she kept his diagnosis quiet and in his final days played a recording of The Phantom of the Opera for him over the phone, which Mercury loved very much. The two had talked about recording it together. And that's great. Like, that's, I forget. So it's like a new thing. And it premiered in London. Right. So it wasn't, it might not have even been on Broadway yet. So she said, I knew that he was in bed and very weak and I wanted to surprise him by recording Phantom. I phoned him and put the speaker near the phone and played it. He was very happy. He said, thank you, Motsi. I wanted very much to hear it. And that was the last time I talked to him. Sorry. She wanted to meet with Mercury. A very nervous Mercury was resistant at first, but the two singers had lunch together and hit it off. After Mercury gave Cabadier a recording of him impersonating her, and she agreed to perform his songs, Exercise in Free Love, according to Freddie Mercury, A Kind of Magic. And this is building towards something which I love. It's one of my favorite things that Freddie ever did. So I'm building. Okay. Because she later suggested that they record something together with the piano player Mike Moran. Mercury and Caballier wrote and recorded Barcelona in 1987. The song was released in October of that year, and it was featured during the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games. I love watching that video on YouTube. Aww. Because he did both parts. Like, he wrote it, and he did both parts. And the reason why she agreed to sing with him was because she realized that he had talent. Like, he wasn't just this rock star. It was that he could do opera, and he could do it well, and he was doing her vocals. And... It's done in in such a way that you don't feel like either is fighting for attention, they're sharing it. Right. And it's this beautiful vocal dance and it's <sighs> sorry, I'm nerding out. I'm nerding out, aren't I? A lot. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
go onto YouTube and watch the video of the two of them. It's a beautiful pairing, and and that's where we'll put that button on Barcelona. So in August 1987, Roger advertised, auditioned, and chose musicians to form a new band, The Cross. He wanted a band that he could write with and, more importantly, tour with during Queen's increasingly lengthy, quiet periods. The single Barcelona was released in Spain in 1987, and 10,000 copies were sold in just three hours. The Spanish Olympic Committee adopted the song as the theme for the Olympic Games being held in the city in 1992, then decided against it, which caused much anger amongst fans, and I think they actually did end up using it. Right. So, because at that point, Freddie had already passed. He passes in 1991, and it's 1992, so... Right. So they probably went back to it. Yeah. So, Rudy and Hannes were Austrian director-producer team who followed Queen all over Europe during the Magic Tour, filming them on stage, backstage, resting, playing, and generally touring. They then searched the archives for footage of live shows, interviews, or outtakes from videos, and after that, they interviewed the band, their friends, their fans, and other stars, and finally... In November 1987, a trilogy of documentary-style videos was released called The Magic Years. The trilogy received numerous awards, including the famous Silver Screen Award in the U.S., the biggest film and TV festival in the world, and the IMMC Award at the Montreux Garden Rose TV Festival. Also in 1987, Queen were presented with the prestigious Ivor Novello Award for their outstanding contribution to British music. And if you'll remember, Freddie, I think, has already gotten two of those. So that just adds to the collection. Now they balance each other out on the uh, mantle. Right. <laughs> in January of 1988, Queen went into the studio to start work on their next album. On January 25th, The Cross released their debut album called Shove It. Cross also embarked on their first European tour, playing clubs and university dates throughout the UK, and then clubs in Germany. Freddie and Montserrat appeared together again October 8th at the huge Lanit event staged in Barcelona, which was helped celebrate the arrival of the Olympic flag from Seoul. Freddie and Montserrat closed the event, held in the presence of the King and Queen of Spain, with Barcelona, The Golden Boy, and How Can I Go On, tracks taken from their forthcoming album. Barcelona, the debut album for Freddie and Montserrat, was released on October 10th, 1988, the launch party was a typically extravagant affair held in the crush bar of the beautiful Covent Garden Opera House, a fitting venue. On December 4th, The Cross, which was uh, Roger's second group, right? they played a one-off gig at London's Hammerschmidt Palace, a party held exclusively for the fan club members. Special guests on stage were Brian and John, and of course, we're missing a person. Freddie wasn't there. Right. Queen released their 16th album on May 22nd in 1989, entitled The Miracle. It entered the charts at number one, which is, I think, a first for them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and that's huge. Just, like, week one, out the gate. But, too, if the fans have been missing them, you know. And they also have... Really good fan interaction, it seems. Like, they actually genuinely care about their fans. And when I saw them at the Hollywood Bowl, it still feels like they're just talking to you when they're performing. And it, it, they make you feel special. So I think there's a, a general love for them that when something came out, just immediately they snatched it up. So That's awesome, though. Yeah. So the miracle 
ended up becoming a massive worldwide success, reaching number one in most European countries. And to promote the release, the four members of the band gathered in at Radio One Studio and allowed themselves to be interviewed by DJ Mike Reed, a scoop for him as the band had not given a joint interview in many years. Which I also think probably helped fuel speculation that they were breaking up, that they hadn't appeared in an interview together in a very long time. Right. As it was the end of the decade, there were numerous Best of the 80s style programs on TV, especially in the UK, and Queen were voted Best Band of the 80s by the viewers of the independent television and the readers of its magazine, TV Times. It was an accolade that they were immensely pleased with, and all of them appeared together on the show to collect it. Accounts differ as to when Freddie told his bandmates they were sick, but Brian May, John Deacon, and Roger Taylor all knew Mercury's health was in decline. Reporters have often asked them questions about Mercury, and the singer allegedly told him about his diagnosis during the end of the summer of 1989. So that's... That's when definitively all the band members knew that he was HIV positive was at the end of 1989. Okay. So we don't know when he contracted it. We don't know when he knew about it, like when he was initially told about it. But it's pretty definitive that by 1989, everybody knew. Jim Hutton, Freddie's friend and companion for the last years of his life, indicated that while the group was eating dinner, one of the members complained about having a cold. Freddie raised the leg of his pants to reveal legions and said, you think you've got problems? Jeez. According to May, however, Mercury's deliver, delivery was much more nuanced. He remembered him telling the band that he wanted to live the rest of his life making music. In late November of 1989, Queen were already back in the studio working on their next album. They had felt so inspired by the huge success of The Miracle. On February 18, 1990, Queen were honored yet again when they were recognized by the British phonographic industry. I had to be very careful when I was pronouncing that. It's phonographic. (laughs) And they were presented with an award for outstanding contribution to British music. They all collected the award and went on to host a huge star-studded party at the London's Groucho Club. In November 1990, Queen signed a major new recording deal in North America with the Disney-financed Hollywood Records. Hollywood immediately began the task of pushing Queen back up to the popularity ladder, and plans were laid to remaster and re-release the entire back catalog on CD. Up until then, the collection had not been available on CD in North America. It's weird to think that wasn't available. Well, I don't know. When do you remember first purchasing CDs. I don't actually know the year, but I know when I bought my first stereo, it had a CD player and I bought a CD to go with it. But I think I vaguely remember having a a CD player in like 94, I think. Okay. Somewhere around there. I don't know. In one of his last public appearances, a Gaunt Mercury joined the band members, May, Taylor, and Deacon on stage at the 1990 Brit Awards in London, where they accepted the Brit Award for Outstanding Contribution to Music. While Freddie continued to battle with his illness in private, he didn't stop working. In May 1991, a very thin Mercury was featured in the Queen music video, These Are the Days of Our Lives, and that would would be his final video. Um, Have you ever seen that video for These Are the Days of Our Lives? No. It's black and white, and it's almost like he can't hide anymore. He's very gaunt. You can tell there's a ton of makeup on him. You you can tell that he's he doesn't have much time. That sucks. Yeah. The foursome traveled to a studio in Montreux, Switzerland, where their final recording as a band with Mercury was made. We all knew there wasn't much time left 
May told The Telegraph in 2013. Freddie wanted his life to be as normal as possible. He was obviously in a lot of pain and discomfort. May added, For him, the studio was an oasis, a place where life was just the same as it always been. He loved making music. He lived for it. On December 7th, the Cross played their only UK date for some time in London's Astoria Theater, yet another fan club party. Brian actually joined them on stage for the encore, so they're super supportive about their 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 branching out and doing other projects. Right. On January 14th, 1991, the band released a six and a half minute long epic innuendo, not my favorite song, as a single. It was a massive success, giving the band their third UK number one single and ensuring them the number one slot throughout Europe. The album of the same name was released on February 4th and it crashed straight into the UK charts at number one, hitting the high spot again throughout Europe and it it even topped number 30 in America. 30. That's pretty good. Well, remember when I was saying Yeah, I mean a they were never ago? that they were never that hugely popular in America while he was living. So, so that's pretty good for them. Oh, and this is a naughty language warning for parents. So if you don't want to hear the F word, skip ahead about 15 seconds and you should be in the clear. Mercury continued recording until not long before his death, losing none of his vocal power, even as his body began to noticeably waste away. While working on The Show Must Go On in 1990, May questioned whether Mercury was well enough to continue. And he went, I'll fucking do it, darling. He downed a shot of vodka and then went out and killed it. Nice. Trooper. End of parental warning. <laughs> the show must go on. Yeah. And I mean, there are plenty of YouTube channels out there that actually have just his vocals isolated. And the ones that impress me the most are The Show Must Go On and Under Pressure. Like when it's oh, just... Under Pressure. If you... Because you listen to that one note in Under Pressure and you think, well, he can't go any higher. And then he does... Mind blown. <laughs> yeah. I can geek out so hard on Queen. You think? It's been an entire month of just Freddie Mercury. Yeah. <laughs> it's not long enough. <laughs> May remembered he completely lacerated that vocal. Enough session work was left over, in fact, for the huge, hugely selling posthumous release 1995's Made in Heaven, which would go on to be four times platinum in the UK. So like I was saying, and this is more of the, the chronological essence of where we're at, on May 30th, he actually filmed the video for Days of Our Lives. And a version featuring Disney animation was made for the USA. I don't think I've actually seen that version, but maybe because it was probably playing on MTV. I don't know. But if you look up, if, if you go to YouTube and look up, these are the days of our lives. Like, the one that comes up is the black and white one. And that's that was the real video. Oh, okay. That's the video I've always known. So, I didn't even know there was an animated version. Greatest Hits 2 was released on October 1991, which is probably the album your sister has. A double album featuring... Probably the burgundy one. Probably. A double album featuring 17 tracks. They also repeated their earlier success by releasing Greatest Flicks 2 and Greatest Picks 2. And uh, you did miss that because I literally turned to Will and was like, that's what I want for my birthday. <laughs> greatest Hits, Greatest Flicks, and Greatest Picks, which was a collection of their recordings. It was their videos and it was their, it was a photo album, like a documentary photo album. Kind of like, oh, cool. kind of like that, kind of like a 
the Brian May 3D. Mm -hmm. And they had done it earlier. And then they just released the second one as well. Cool. A special box was also released called Box of Flicks, featuring Flicks 1 and 2 plus four bonus tracks. Needless to say, both Hits 2 and Flicks 2 were number one. I guess people just didn't look at pictures before. (laughs) I guess. So when they were filming the video for These Are the Days of Our Lives, it did feature Mercury in his final scenes in front of the camera. And the rest of the band were ready to record when Mercury felt able to come into the studio. And it was only for like an hour or two at a time. He just kept saying, write more stuff. Write me more stuff. I just want to sing this and do it. And when I'm gone, you can finish it off. He had no fear, really. Justin Shirley Smith, the assistant engineer for those last sessions, said, It was hard to explain to people, but it wasn't sad. It was actually very happy. He, talking about Freddie, was one of the funniest people I've ever encountered. I think I was laughing the most of the time with him. Freddie was saying of his illness that, I'm not going to think about it, I'm just going to do this. Mercury returned to London in early 1991 telling his bandmates, I'm not feeling that great, I think I should call it a day. I'll finish when I come back next time, as May recounted. The singer never returned. After the conclusion of his work with Queen in June 1991, Mercury retired to his home in Kensington, West London. His former partner, Mary Austin, was a particular comfort to him in his final years and in the last few weeks made regular visits to look after him. Near the end of his life, Mercury began to lose his sight, and it declined so bad that he was unable to leave his bed. Mercury had chosen to hasten his death, by refusing medication and only took painkillers. On November 22, 1991, Mercury called Queen's manager Jim Beach to his Kensington home to prepare a public statement, which was released the following day. And this is the, the statement. Following the enormous conjecture in the press over the last two weeks, I wish to confirm that I have been tested HIV positive and have AIDS. I felt it correct to keep this information private to date to, to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has come now for my friends and fans around the world to know the truth and that I hope everyone will join with me. My doctors say all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. My privacy has always been very special to me and I am famous for my lack of interviews. Please understand that this policy will continue. On the evening of the 24th of November 1991, about 24 hours after issuing the statement, Mercury died at the age of 45 at his home in Kensington. The cause of death was bronchial pneumonia resulting from AIDS. Mercury's close friend Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five was at a bedside vigil when he died. Austin phoned Mercury's parents and sister to break the news, which reached the newspapers and television crews on the early hours of November 25th. Sorry. It's all right. It's the hardest part, you know? I know. I've been there. Mercury's funeral service was conducted on the 27th of November, 1991 by a Zoroastrian priest at the West London Crematorium, where he was cremated, by a plight under his birth name. In attendance at Mercury services were his family and 35 of his close friends, including Elton John the members and the members of Queen. His coffin was carried into the chapel to the sounds of Take My Hand, Precious Lord, and You've Got a Friend by Aretha Franklin. In accordance with Mercury's wishes, Mary Austin took possession of his cremated remains and buried them in an undisclosed location. The whereabouts of his ashes are believed to be known only to Austin, who has said she will never reveal them. Mercury bequeathed his majority of his wealth, including his home and recording royalties, to Mary Austin, and the remainder to his parents and sister. He left 50,000 pounds to his chef, 50,000 to his personal assistant, 
Peter Freestone, a hundred thousand to his driver, Terry Gideon, and five hundred thousand to Jim Hutton. Austin continues to live at Mercury's former home, Garden Lodge, Kensington, with her family. The outer walls of the Garden Lodge became a shrine to Freddie, with mourners paying tribute by covering the walls in graffiti messages. Three years after his death, Time Out magazine reported that the wall outside the house has become London's biggest rock and roll shrine. Fans continue to pay their respects with letters appearing on the wall. Mary has a love-hate relationship with this because everybody knows the address. And it's a, a brick wall. And there's a door right. that, that I think leads into a garden. Right. And people will, every day, will scrawl stuff on the wall. Yeah. So. I mean, it. I can see both sides. It's easy to see both sides because, number one, it, it is a private residence. Someone lives there. However, they're connected to Freddie, and that's the place where they go to pay their respects. No, so I, I mean, and I, I get that. And like I say, I see, I can see both sides of yeah. needing the outlet and going there and doing something special. But uh, like I say, I see the, I see her side too. That it's her know, home. It's the place where she. That's <laughs> her home. Yeah. That's also has a lot of memories for her. That's you know constantly having it thrown in your face, like somebody that. I'm sure she, you know, she already cared very deeply for him and they had a very long relationship. Like, I think that would be hard. Yeah. That's like if Will died and people kept coming to your door every day to put stuff on it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a... a like decades later. It's a it's a double-sided yeah. sword, you whatever know. the phrase is. Yeah, it's a double-edged double sword. sword. I mean, it's just... Like I say, I can definitely see both sides of it, of like needing that place... But then also her side of just wanting some privacy. So after he passed away, Austin also received both Mercury's opulent Edwardian mansion located in West London and the bulk of his fortune, like I was saying. May and Taylor, meanwhile, have continued on as queen with a series of guest singers, including including George Michael, Paul Rogers, and most recently, American Idol finalist Adam Lambert. And I'm just going to go off script for just a second because this is the, the one time I can actually talk about this. But you can find that concert on YouTube. And honestly, it was one of the best concerts I've ever seen. And it was because while you're watching this concert, Adam Lambert acts as a conduit. He's just bringing the vocals to life. And they're very respectful about Freddie. It's almost like Freddie is with us in spirit while you're watching this concert. And when I saw it, Adam actually said, I'm not Freddie. I am a mere mortal. Freddie was a god. And Adam Lambert's talented. He has got he was a great front man for Queen. I would see that again in a heartbeat. But they actually incorporated some of Freddie into the concert. They would project him on the walls. And they actually have him come out and sing part of Love of My Life. And I I think it's beautiful. So if you have a chance to see Queen with Adam Lambert, take the take take it. Get the tickets. See the show. Take the ride. It is unbelievable. It's it's the best concert I have ever been to. Ever. Well, there you go. <laughs> So they also established the Mercury Phoenix Trust in 1992 in memory of Mercury, raising awareness and funds as a part of the fight against AIDS. On November 25th, 1991, Brian's first solo single, Driven by You, was released. 
And I'm only mentioning that because Freddie had urged Brian to go ahead with the planned release date. He actually told Brian, don't stop because of this. Keep going forward. Originally written as a commission piece for use in a Ford Cars advertising campaign, the single made the top 10 on the UK charts. As a tribute to Freddie and to raise funds for the Terrence Higgins Trust to continue the fight against AIDS, as Freddie's last wishes requested, Bohemian Rhapsody, These Are the Days of Our Lives, was released as a double A-side single on December 9th, 1991. It entered the UK charts at number one, where it remained for five weeks, raising over one million pounds for the AIDS charity. Oh God, okay. I, this is just a fight to make it through to the end of this episode for me. You can do it. Remember, I have puppy food to go by. I know. <laughs> Three years after Mercury's passing, Hutton published a book detailing his time with the singer titled Mercury and Me. I, I tried to get my hands on this book. I just, I ran out of time and money. So um, according to the book summary on Amazon, Hutton worked as Mercury's gardener after moving into the singer's Kensington mansion, and he never fully embraced the rock and roll lifestyle. Instead, maintaining a relatively normal life with his famous live-in boyfriend, Hutton's primary motivation for writing with the book was therapeutic in nature. He revealed in a 1994 interview with the British morning news program The Big Breakfast, as he believed it would help him grieve his lover's death. When Mercury was first diagnosed with the disease, told Hutton, I would understand if you wanted to pack your bags and leave, he said. But Hutton wasn't about to abandon his partner just because their carefree days had come to an end. He replied, Don't be stupid. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. Although Jim Hutton helped nurse Mercury through private treatments in home, the fight against AIDS was still in its infancy in the late 1980s. The singer took the drug AZT, which was actually approved by the FDA in 1987, but proved ineffective at treating HIV on its own, and refused to let the illness prevent him from living his life. He even filmed the music video for Barcelona against his doctor's wishes. But Hutton and his friends noticed that he was slowly wasting away. Hutton later admitted that that he was perhaps in denial of Mercury's steady, declining condition, and he noticed how skeletal he would become only on the morning of his last birthday. Hutton also suspected that Mercury could sense his own end was near and that he decided to stay off his AIDS medication three weeks before he died. A few days before Mercury passed away, he wanted to leave his sickbed and look at his paintings. So Hutton helped him downstairs and then carried him back up again. <laughs> I never realized how strong you are, Mercury declared. It would be the couple's last real conversation. Hutton went back home to Ireland where he used the money Mercury had left him to build a home of his own. Hutton himself had been diagnosed with HIV in 1990. He didn't tell Mercury until a year later where the singer simply exclaimed, Bastards. In 1994, he published his memoir, uh, partially, he explained, as a way to overcome his lingering grief. Jim Hutton himself passed away from cancer in 2010, shortly before his 61st birthday. In December 1991, Queen had no fewer than 10 albums in the UK Top 100. In February 1992, the annual Brit Awards recognized Freddie with a special posthumous award for outstanding contribution to British music. And out of the three Queen nominations, These Are the Days of Our Lives won the best single for the 1991 award. At that award ceremony, Roger and Brian announced plans for a massive open-air concert at Wembley Stadium to celebrate Freddie's life and to give him a send-off to remember. Tickets went on sale the next day, and with, with no announcement of who was going to play, apart from Brian, Roger, and John, all 72,000 tickets sold out in just six hours. Dang. And on Easter Monday, April 20th, 1992, 
many of the world's top top stars joined Roger, John, and Brian at Wembley to play an emotional tribute to Freddie. The stadium was packed to capacity, and it was televised live to over one billion people. So some of the people that were in attendance were actually Metallica, Extreme, Def Leppard, Bob Geldof, Spinal Tap, which is awesome, U2, Guns N' Roses, uh, Mango Grove, Elizabeth Taylor, who gave a speech, and with Queen they had Joe Elliott, Roger Daltrey, uh, James Hetfield, Robert Plant, Paul Young, Seal, Lisa Stansfield, David Bowie, Ian Hunter, I mean, George Michael was there, Elton John was there, Axl Rose was there, Liza Minnelli, I mean, that was a huge concert. <laughs> Liza. Liza. In April of 1992, Queen were awarded an Ivor Novella for the best single with These Are the Days of Our Lives. And Brian also won an award for Driven by You for the best TV commercial music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So I think they've won four Ivor Novellos as as between Freddie and Queen. I think they've won four. Something like that. Something like that. In the summer of 1992... The Mercury Phoenix Trust, a registered charity, was founded to distribute the money raised by the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert for AIDS Awareness. The Mercury Phoenix Trust is still active and has donated more than $8 million to AIDS charities worldwide to date. It is currently concentrating its efforts on education and awareness in the developing world. The trustees of the Mercury Phoenix Trust are Roger Taylor, Brian May, Mary Austin, and Jim Beach. In September 1992, saw the release of the long-awaited Brian May solo album called Back to the Light. The album went to the UK charts at number six and achieved double gold status. So the Brian May band was then formed, having warmed up in Chile, Argentina, and Brazil in November 1992. The Brian May band embarked on a world tour beginning in the U.S. and Europe with special guests to Guns N' Roses. They then went on to headline their own sellout tour in North America, Japan, and Europe, finishing in Portugal December 1993. Prior to Christmas 1992, a double video of the Freddie Tribute concert was released, with all proceeds being donated to the Mercury Phoenix Trust. The Freddie Mercury album was released in November 1992 with the first single, In My Defense, on the 30th of November 1992. The single was followed up by The Great Pretender in January of 1993 and Living on My Own in spring 1993. This latter single won posthumous awards as the 1993 International Hit of the Year. 1993 saw the release of George Michael, Lisa Stanfield, Queen mini-album, five live EP. This mini-album and the single Somebody to Love were released worldwide in the aid of the trust. They reached the top 10 in 31 countries, and the single reached number one in the UK on the 22nd of April. And somewhere around this, I think it was 1992, a little movie called Wayne's World was released, and that's when... I think America really finally figured out that Queen was awesome. Yeah. And there's a little Easter egg, if you can find it, in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm not going to tell you about it because you're going to watch it tomorrow night, and then we're going to talk about it on Saturday. Again, most elaborate scheme ever to get me to watch a movie. (laughs) This was months. Took me months. Um, in February 1994, EMI released the Brian May Band live at Brixton Academy on album and video, the first live recordings of the band. And in September 1994, Roger Taylor released his solo album, Happiness. 
This was preceded by the May 3rd single release of Nazis 94, which addresses the issue of Europeans' increasing rise of neo-Nazism. The second single, Foreign Sand, was released throughout Europe and at the end of September 1994. Roger Taylor's band toured the UK and Italy in November 1994 and January of, uh, through January of 1995. Side note, Queen's music has been used in almost 450 TV shows and movies. Including the one you have to watch. Oh, I know. A Knight's <laughs> Tale. I'm going to get there. I told you. Um, You'll love it because there's tons of Queen music in it. And so because I have been on the verge of tears for like the last half hour, I passed Lindley put some stuff in here for me so I could kind of lighten up the mood. So I wanted to add some fun facts and some of my favorite Freddie Mercury quotes. Uh, we'll start out with the we'll start out with the Freddie Mercury quotes. If I don't do this well, I just wouldn't have anything to do. I can't cook and I'd be a terrible housewife. <laughs> on on his on his death. Oh, I wasn't made for heaven. No, I don't want to go to heaven. Hell's much better. Think of all the interesting people that you're going to meet down there. Yep. <laughs> Ditto. I always knew I was a star and now the rest of the world seems to agree with me. I won't be a rock star. I will be a legend. You are, Freddy. <laughs> Jeez. Um, I actually saw him do this quote, which is, when I'm dead, are they going to remember me? I don't really think about it. It's up to them. When I'm dead, who cares? I don't. How did you see him do that quote? Uh, it's on a video on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I thought you meant like in person. And this is one of my... My favorite quotes, basically, of anybody ever. You can do what you want with my music, he said, but don't make me boring. I love that because people have taken Queen songs nice. and done things to them and created things out of them and made, they've taken Bohemian Rhapsody and turned it into a different song. They've taken images of him and created art from it. And you should never change bohemian rhapsody into a different song get out of here uh yeah i'm looking at you kanye yeah <laughs> don't tell yeezy i said that <laughs> you don't need to change what is perfected it is perfect but there that's the thing is if it you, ain't broke don't fix it no but it. you can change it you you still have this beautiful song and someone has created a dance motif to the song or someone has taken it and changed everything into minor chords. Listen, I mean, they've, they've done... I'm, I'm, I'm all for I'm art all, for art's sake. I am all for creative expression. I am all for, you know, putting a different take on something and making it your own. But there are some things that are sacred. I, I feel like as long as we have the original, please do what you want. Uh, that I think we have two varying. Oh, really? I think we have two varying opinions. I have on a this. very interesting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go on. There was a very interesting photo that I took of you listening to Lana Del Rey's cover of "Summertime." I didn't say I would like it. I just said, "Please do it." <laughs> I don't know. I think, in some respects, yes, some things leave them be. 
I'm not saying I don't need I'm a not saying remake remix to Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm not saying remake The Princess Bride. I'm saying you can take a song and make it your own and make it different. At least they're yes, creating absolutely. something. But also, like uh, I love, I love create. I don't know. That's a very complicated subject for me. Well, let's go on to some of the the accolades. I have three accolades because seriously, if I just started listing off accolades, your dog would die of starvation. <laughs> and True. I can't have that. So I picked my three favorite ones, which is in the spring of 2010, he was named the greatest rock and roll legend of all time in a poll for onepoll.com and he beat Elvis Presley into second place. Whoa. Yeah. His song Bohemian Rhapsody from 1975 was named British favorite pop single of all time in a 2002 poll by Guinness Book of World Records. More than 31,000 people voted in the poll for the biggest British hit singles book. Nice. So it was contributed by 31,000 people who voted that to be the best song of all time. 31,000 people is not that many in the scheme of the world. Can you get 31,000 people to do a poll voluntarily, though? Yes. <laughs> Depends on the poll. <laughs> you said poll. I mean, look at all the people that do those ridiculous polls on Facebook and BuzzFeed and all that crap. Yeah, but those are easy. Like, you just click a button. Like, I'm assuming that they actually had to, like, fill stuff out. Because Guinness Book of World Records, you have to be verified. Yeah, fair enough. So, that's that's the only point I was making. Is is That's a feat. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. So, I think that's their second time being in the Guinness Book of World Records. Because they were entered into the Guinness Book of World Records as Britain's highest paid executives. Fair enough. So, twice. He was, I, I lied, there are four. But there are two sentences and it looks like they were run on. Um... <laughs> <laughs> He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001 as a member of Queen. So Queen, as a group, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001. Why did it take so long? Um, Because <laughs> people be crazy. And this is what I'm going to leave you on, <laughs> which is my favorite one. He was inducted into the International Mustache Hall of Fame in 2015 inaugural class. In the category of music and arts. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> it's just a mustache, people. You, you don't need a mustache hall mustache. of fame. Yes, you do. How no, are you, you don't. How do you honor people like Tom Selleck and oh Sam Elliott God. and Freddie Mercury? You have to have a hall of fame for mustaches. No. I want to go to it. You have hall of fames for people. You don't need hall of fames for facial hair. Get over it, world. You know men what? I don't a- need you to kill no, my joy. No. Men have been able to grow facial hair for as long as they've been in existence. Yeah, but we can Get bring life. over it. We can, we can create life. Oh, my God. Buy some dang razors. <laughs> Someone is bitter tonight. I don't like facial hair, and I think it's stupid that everybody's obsessed with mustaches and beards. Okay, so Sorry. on that note, guys, thank you so much for <laughs> listening. <laughs> Tracy's going to have a nap and some vodka. Scruff or nothing. Get out of here. Okay, bye, Tracy. Love you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's actually our episode. Thank you so much for sticking with us through the month of Mercury. It has been something that I've absolutely loved. I, Of course, it, it... it helps when you're completely obsessed with the subject and you're given a platform to talk about something that you love so much. So thank you guys for putting up with my obsession for the past four weeks. Uh, there's only a little bit more mercury Five. left. 
I, I was saying there's only a little bit more okay, mercury left. I was going to say there's still more. We have a short set coming up, which is going to be uh, the what's the difference between Queen and the film Bohemian Rhapsody. So that short set's going to be coming out on Wednesday or Thursday. I'll try to get that out as soon as possible. Straight to our social stuff. Uh, if you think we're doing an amazing job here at Rock and Roll Heaven, you can check us out at Patreon. And that's patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Instagram, Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. You can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. Thank you so much, guys, for checking this episode out. Make sure to check out our short set. And then we're going to get into spooky October, where we are not specifically talking about one person. We'll be talking about a lot of people. Uh, and I think, well, I hope you guys really like it. So. That's basically it. Any more business, TJ? No, I have to get to the pet store. All right. So (laughs) (laughs) you guys have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Hey, TJ. Yeah. uh, Can you take some Izzy's from the refrigerator? No. Dang. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Sometimes I get to feeling I was back in the old days Long ago When we were kids, when we were young Things seemed so perfect, you know The days were endless, we were crazy, we were young The sun was always shining, we just lived for fun Sometimes it seems like lately
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.